I'm sorry, you had me cracking up real bad when you said uh, Playcrest, because all I could think was Play Procrastination. Shoot the core, cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that likes to shoot birds, but only the murderous space alien variety. I'm Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups. And I am Elfro from RFGeneration.com, known throughout other parts of the interwebs as the Game Boy Guru. And of course, uh, RF Generation is the place to be for all sorts of cool things. We have a great forum where you can come and sign up for the Shmup Club and participate in that, and also our regular playthrough that uh, Single Banana and Grey Ghost 81 host, and other discussions as well. Plus, we have the huge database where you can track your game collection and find all sorts of awesome information about uh, different games and variants and different region releases and all sorts of cool stuff. Plus, make a wish list and uh, sale and a trade list. And uh, we also have articles on the front page. Both Addicted and I uh, contribute articles every month uh, for your reading pleasure. One thing that we should quickly mention here is that the playthrough for January for the community playthrough, not the non-shmup playthrough, is Lunar Nights, which is one of my favorite DS games. I wouldn't go as far as to call it a Metal Jesus hidden gem, but... Definitely one of the better games on the DS, in my opinion. Nice. All right, this month we played two Atari 2600 games, Demon Attack by iMagic and Spider Fighter by Activision. Yes, indeed. Uh, I'd like to give a nice shout-out to all those who played with us this month. We have Metalfro, myself, Addicted, Lord Borb 4, the always ever-present Dougley007, and Lewis G. Indeed. We'd like to start us off with a quick introduction to the games and a look at the developers. Sure. Um, so the first game is Demon Attack. And again, as you said, that was developed by iMagic um, for the Atari 2600 initially, and then was released in 1982 and programmed by Rob Fullop. iMagic was formed from some former Atari and Mattel employees, and they were the second third-party publisher for the 2600, uh, the first being Activision. Uh, they also released games on the ColecoVision, the Intellivision, uh, the Odyssey 2, and multiple home computers that were out at the time, such as the TI-99, the TRS-80, and so forth. And actually, uh, Demon Attack did receive versions on a lot of those other computers, although they made significant changes to those versions that play differently from the 2600 original, uh, and so we're not covering those within the scope of, of uh, Shmup Club or the podcast. Yeah, that's more like a Demon Attack 1.5 or Super Demon Attack. 
<laughs> Good yeah. way to think of it as Miss Pac-Man as opposed to the original Pac-Man. And in this version, we'll be covering the original Pac-Man. Yeah, that's that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, so iMagic, unfortunately, was not able to weather the the U.S. game market downturn that happened in uh, 1983, 84, uh, and so the company closed down in the mid 80s. And um, also, one interesting thing about Demon Attack specifically is that Atari actually sued iMagic over the game. Um, which is funny considering that uh, Demon Attack happens to be one of iMagic's most successful titles. But the reason they sued them over that was because apparently uh, it, they felt it was too similar to the arcade game Phoenix, which Atari didn't develop, but they owned the home console rights to that game. Uh, and so they must have felt like iMagic was blatantly ripping off Phoenix in making Demon Attack. And I would say that I would, there are similarities, but I think it's different enough uh, that it stands on its own. That's, you know, my my opinion. So you wouldn't call this sort of like a Donkey Kong slash Crazy Kong type situation? No. Or, or, even, a, or even like a Pac-Man, Casey Munchin kind of, you know, scenario with, uh, you know, the Casey Munchin game on the Odyssey 2 where it was seen as sort of a Pac-Man clone. Um, but then of course the court case that came about from that, it was ruled that it was that the mechanics in the game were different enough that it, it stood on its own and, uh, was not seen as a clone. And, and I think demon attack is probably the, the same kind of thing. Um, it's different enough from Phoenix that it, it it's its own thing. I agree. And one of the things that, that sort of surprised me, is, and we'll get to in just a second here, as we start reading about the story behind it, it seemed to strike a very much more uh, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back vibe from the story than uh, anything else. Yeah. Speaking of which, in the, in the manual for Demon Attack, the story is thus. Marooned on the ice planet Krybor, you watch legions of eerie creatures scream overhead. They hover ominously. Attack and destroy them, or be destroyed. Armed with your laser cannon, you confront the ultimate challenge. Survive! So all very dramatic for demon attack in the setup. Uh, but if you look at the, uh, the cover of the game, and I have the box right here, it's very, very cheap looking. Uh, it literally looks like, like the main alien creature that's on this uh, the box here looks like someone spray-painted a toy dinosaur silver and shoved a toy airplane up its butt and then has wings and missiles sticking out the sides. Yeah, iMagic games were notorious for having uh, interesting cover art, and I believe that those were models that they had used in that case. Went to a model store, put them together, and then just, as you said, uh, shoved one up. It's the other one's keister and... Uh, then spray painted everything silver. Yeah, and then of course you've got the uh, you've got the Starfield in the back with the the seventies disco uh, star kind of flare effect, and it's all very low budget, but that has a certain charm to it. The interesting thing is my copy of the game here. 
it, it says demon attack on the side and the top of the box. And, uh, but then on the, on the title on the top, on the front of the box and then across the back, it says new demon attack. It still has demon attack in large letters and then written just in small letters next to that. It says new. So I wonder what the, the impetus for new demon attack was or why it's labeled as such. So I don't know if my copy of the game came about after the lawsuit yeah. or whatever. Uh, maybe that or, or like a, a reprint or something like that on there where they could put on there. Yeah, uh, it could, the infamous it could, Dreamcast Hot New type right. situation. Yeah, but if I look at the cartridge, it actually says uh, the part number on it is seven two zero one zero one dash one revision B. So it it's very possible that uh, this is in fact a reprint based on uh, you know that that may have come about because of that lawsuit. Uh, and I don't know if that means there were changes between the original release and revision B. Um, I'd have to look at, I've got a, I've got this complete copy and then I've got a copy that's actually in my Atari 7800 that I've been playing, uh, you know, through December for this, uh, this shmup club. And so I didn't look to see which revision is in the, uh, in the system that I've actually been playing, um, but that's kind of interesting, nonetheless. It is. If you flip to the end of the manual, does it say not related to Phoenix in any way? Let me look, because I actually have the manual here. iMagic wants you to be as pleased in playing our games as we are in providing them. Uh, let's see here. No, I imagine it's probably a reprint or something that's done after the court order in order to... Uh, <clears throat> maybe like that's their way of doing the greatest hits copy or something like that. Well, I'll have to do some more research on it. That could very well be, yeah. Um, but there is something in the manual that I'll want to note as we get into the uh, the gameplay and so forth. But, um, yeah, Demon Attack, uh, the reason that we did these two games together, I'll just set this up real quick, is, is because, number one, December's a busy month. Everybody's got holiday stuff going on, so I thought... The, 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 the thing that would be fun to do would be to take two super simple, easy games, throw them together, do a side-by-side, and see which one everybody likes more than the other, and do a comparison, and, and uh, just have a little fun with that. But make them really quick pick-up-and-play games that aren't going to take up a lot of people's time, and hopefully be still fun games that we can all get some enjoyment out of. And so... Um, both of these games are what are called fixed shooters. And so Demon Attack, is it's a single-screen fixed shoot-em-up. So unlike a game such as uh, Gradius or even on the Atari 2600, something like River Raid or Vanguard, for example, this game does not scroll. Uh, you can move your, your um, craft left and right, and in this game it's called a bunker, uh, and you can move that left and right, and... Uh, you can fire lasers from that uh, to attack the uh, the demons or you know the flying creatures that show up on the screen. Yeah, um, just to do a quick analogy here. Anyone who to if you're thinking of a fixed shooter, the quickest analogy or the quickest way to think of it that anyone's come across is Space Invaders. These are similar to Space Invaders or Space Invader clone. Not quite, but similar enough that you could call them that. Exactly, Space Invaders. Galaxian, Galaga, 
Gorf, um, Phoenix, etc. Did you have any problems thinking that those there was actually a bunker you're moving around? Like bunker to me is sort of a fixed object. I don't, I don't ever expect everyone to just say move the bunker. I would expect you know, hey, you're fine. It'd been easier just to say you're piloting a spaceship and you move around. But I guess it's too much of a uh, Star Wars vibe here, or with the early '80s, you're on the planet Crybor. And you've got to fight against these evil aliens to survive. I mean, it's just that opening scene of Empire, where you're in a bunker fighting against the Empire, who's coming with those adats and AT. Uh, no, I believe it's just adats on that one. And you, you could just call it a, a snow speeder or snow bike, and you would have <laughs> had a Star Wars ripoff. Almost, yeah, yeah. It definitely has a little bit of that. Um, a little bit of that. It just, it, it, it seems like it's channeling that somewhat. Yes. But yeah, I, the the whole bunker concept is weird because, like you said, a bunker you would think of as more of a fixed object rather than something that moves. So that is a little bit of a weird choice that they made. Uh, but essentially, each round or each wave has eight enemies, and you can have three on screen at any time. Uh, I'll say three large enemies. That's a distinction that we'll get to in a moment. And... When you take out one of those enemies, then another enemy will will come on screen. And one of the cool things about this game that I always enjoyed when I played it as a kid was when enemies come on screen, they sort of warp in. So there's this cool effect where there's this sound effect when an enemy warps in, and then the, the pixels that make up the enemy sort of zoom in from the left and right sides of the screen and all sort of zoop into place uh, to create this enemy sprite. Uh, very impressive for its time. And whoever it was that um, the, this uh, uh, Rob Fullop, I don't know if he defected from Atari or from Mattel, but hats off to him for this cool warp effect and, and coming up with that because... Uh, that is definitely one of the one of the hooks in the game is that uh, that awesome effect that happens. You have three large enemies on screen at a time, and your bunker that you move left and right can shoot one laser blast at a time. So you're targeting these enemies, and they will be at three relative heights above your position, but only the lowest enemy will actually fire at you. And there are a couple of different things. You've got enemies that'll shoot down a sort of a sprinkle of bullets at you. And then some of the later enemies will actually fire uh, large streams of laser at you. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the idea. Now, starting at round five in the game, those large enemies will split off into two smaller enemies. They'll move independently of one another. Uh, but then when that happens, only one of those will attack you. So uh, the other interesting thing with that is when you split an enemy off and shoot down one of the smaller enemies, which always sort of look like little birds, then the partner bird that split off from that larger enemy will start to kind of dive bomb you um, and come down to your position. And so you can either try to get underneath of it and shoot it, or if you've got room, maneuver away so that you can avoid... Um, getting kamikaze essentially. 
from uh, from that smaller alien bird or whatever it is. Each round you complete successfully without losing a bunker will earn you an extra bunker up to a maximum of six. Uh, so you can have five bunkers in reserve, essentially. And then the game is made up of 12 different waves of enemies. Um, and there are six different enemy types. And so waves one and two will be the first enemy type, and then waves uh, three and four will be the next enemy type, and so on and so forth. So waves one and two are kind of a simple, weird-looking, um, almost like a space manta ray or something like that. And then waves three and four are more of a more of a bird-type creature. Waves five and six are this sort of weird, I don't even know what you call it, kind of this weird circular shape with arms coming out of it. Hey, it's Atari user imagination. Right. And then 7 and 8 uh, do this um, weird kind of bird blob thing. And then uh, uh, I want to say 9 and 10 mix it up with something else. And I want to say it's 11 and 12, uh, the last two rounds, that have these weird pulsating orb enemies that... Um, are quite difficult because when I say pulsating, the, the frame of animation is basically the orb is large and then the other frame of animation is the orb is small. And so sometimes they can be a little harder to hit because if you're not targeting them right in the center or uh, they move after you shoot and or move smaller, uh, you know, go to the smaller frame of animation, your laser blast can sometimes pass right next to them and not actually hit them so that that makes them more difficult to target oh and and in each of those uh each of those pairings one and two uh three and four five and six etc that have the same enemy type on two waves the second wave of that same enemy type those enemies will be faster and more aggressive uh, and so that's how the the challenge kind of ramps up throughout the game in addition to the the differences in the attack patterns between the different stages. After wave 12, the game repeats, and you keep fighting the same enemy types over and over again, but starting again with round 13, aka round 1, mark 2, uh, the enemies split off again, and so then that gives you the opportunity to earn more points, uh, and we'll get into that here in, in a little bit when I talk about scoring. Curiously, though, I didn't know this, uh, but I was just looking at the manual while we were talking earlier, and apparently the games have, or this this game has 84 waves. That's on, yeah, I, I can't get that far. <laughs> I think that equates to looping the game six times, if, I'm, if my math is right. Uh, or, yeah, is that right? Let me do the math real quick. By 12 waves. Seven times. So that's seven loops uh, of the game in order to beat the game. And it says, uh, survive 84 waves and the demons will surrender. Your screen will go black. Uh, to launch a new assault, turn power switch off, then on, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, at the end there, it says, congratulations, you've joined a select few. Uh, now, I don't know how many waves I got through, but um, I do think I got a a decent amount through the game. I probably looped it a couple of times, if not three times, but 
yeah, it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to get that far. And I, I would say hats off to anyone who was able to uh, to reach that point. It's interesting that it has a little bit of a kill screen in there at the end of it. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's actually there are a lot of Atari Twenty Six Hundred games that, like a lot of early arcade games, just sort of loop forever. Uh, and so it is interesting that this is one that is designed to end at some point. There are two difficulty levels in the game. There's the B-type, which the manual refers to as basic bombardment, and that is the easy mode. And then there is the A-type, which is the hard mode, and the manual labels that as aggressive action. So I kind of like the uh, alliteration that they use there. Uh, in the manual to kind of describe the the two difficulty levels. Also, one interesting thing about this game is that uh, you get continuous fire. So the game has an auto-fire feature to it, even though your bunker can only shoot one laser at a time. But I found that was useful uh, because there are times when you're trying to escape enemy fire or move away from a, from a diving... Uh, bird or enemy that is getting too close to you and you can't pinpoint. Uh, and so you can hold the fire button down and continue firing at other enemies that are up there uh, in order to kind of keep the assault going while you're concentrating on your movement. Um, so I thought that was a nice feature. Yeah, it's it reminded me a lot of what you'd see today in modern first-person shooters. There are stuff more akin to, let's say, Gears of War, where you're doing blind fire. It's you're not really aiming out there, but you're just firing enough shots to cover yourself as you're as you're moving from point to point. Sure. Another curious thing about the game is when you start a round, uh, your bunker always appears on the screen, somewhat to the right of the screen center. I'm not sure why that is. Um, I don't know if that's um, if that's because of a programming limitation or a memory limitation within the 2600. Uh, I know that the 2600 had a lot of interesting quirks about it in terms of programming games in order to get things within 2K and 4K memory spaces to to make the cartridges less expensive to produce. Um, So it's possible that that's the reason that it starts out that way. But I thought it was interesting nonetheless. Yeah, it was pretty interesting, and if anyone's interested in reading more about how the Atari works, they'll definitely read the book Racing the Beam. Very interesting, very technical, but still you inter- really interesting to see how the Atari was literally racing the uh, electron gun as it was drawn across the drawn the images across the screen of a CRT. Have you had a chance to read that book yet? I haven't yet, but that sounds fascinating. I've uh, I've been listening to uh, some older episodes and kind of catching up on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred Game by Game podcast done by a guy called Ferg, and uh, he has contributors that write in and do audio submissions and things to contribute their thoughts on whatever the game of the month is or the game of the the episode, and a couple of his frequent contributors. They're relatively well-read and knowledgeable about the technicalities of programming for the 2600. So they talk about the the different memory registers and uh, things like that and, and some of the limitations of the, of the system. And so sometimes they'll get into a little bit more 
detail and get further down into the weeds as to why a certain game uh, has a, a specific quirk or why it was programmed in such a way or, you know, why this arcade port or that game had uh, this limitation or this corner was cut because the 2600, uh, you know, couldn't handle um, this many objects or sprites on any given line or something like that. And it's it's a lot of uh, fascinating information about uh, this early console and, and how it works. Sounds like a pretty cool thing to listen to and to read. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, I mean, regarding the, limit, the limitations of the 2600, I would say that your guess sounds about right for what it, I would imagine it to be. Yeah, yeah, I'm just speculating, but uh, it's an it's an interesting quirk nonetheless. Uh, as far as game types, the Demon Attack cartridge comes with multiple game types. Essentially, ten different game modes is the way that it touts it. Game one is a one-player game, and all the uh, the first several odd-numbered games are one-player games, uh, and then the first several even-numbered games are two-player games. So game one is Demon Attack, and then game two is Demon Attack for two players, where you alternate in between lives, much as you would alternate in something like Super Mario Brothers. You play until you die, uh, and then player two takes over. Game three is called Tracer Shot Demon Attack, and uh, according to the manual, the tracer shot is uh, essentially where the laser cannon will uh, control the the shot trajectory after it's been fired. So a lot of Atari 2600 games, when you shoot and then you move your ship, the shot stays vertically positioned with wherever your craft or sprite is. Again, likely a limitation of the platform, but that's a common uh, common occurrence in a lot of early Atari 2600 games. So the, the primary game of Demon Attack is you shoot your shot and then it goes up no matter where you move your ship, whereas the Tracer shot does that where it follows. Uh, and I think that would probably make it harder because of the fact that one of the strategies in the game, obviously, is to get underneath of an enemy, shoot, and then move away, especially for the enemies on the lower level that are attacking you so that you can avoid losing a bunker. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it would add a, a lot more to making the game harder on there. I, when playing the game on there, or the way that the enemies come in, I, geez, that it sounds like pro mode. Right. Well, and speaking of pro mode, games five and six are the one and two player uh, modes, respectively, of what's called Advanced Demon Attack, which is apparently maybe a more advanced mode or a harder mode. The The manual doesn't really get into that or specify what makes it advanced. Uh, and so five and six is, is Advanced Demon Attack, and then seven and eight is Advanced Tracer Demon Attack. So uh, whatever makes it advanced, I, I couldn't say specifically. And then 9 and 10 are slightly different. They're, they're considered a co-op mode. So instead of a head-to-head -head competitive where you play until you die, the co-op mode uh, for, not, for game 9 is uh, Demon Attack Co-op. So how that works is player 1 plays a level, and then player two plays that same level. 
then player one plays the next level, and then player two plays the next level. So you always alternate on the level, so it's as if you're it's as if you're attacking the same waves alternately. I still don't know how that's co-op, but it's an interesting concept, uh, and a and a, a, I guess a nice way, especially for families and and people like playing together and uh, families and and children when they're playing this game as kids or whatever, so that older brother doesn't get in and play fifteen rounds and then finally die, and then little brother plays half a round and dies, and then Big Brother goes back and plays another eight rounds because he's really good at the game, and then finally dies, and then Little Brother plays, you know, 30 seconds and dies. And so this would be a nice way to alleviate that kind of uh, kind of thing. Uh, and then Game 10 is just the advanced special co-op version. Now, with all these modes that are in here, what mode did you end up using the most? I'm assuming that you weren't trying to do two players by yourself and you just went with the standard game mode. Yeah, I went with the standard game mode. I initially played on the basic bombardment or easy mode, but as I went along, uh, I, I ramped that up to the, the aggressive action mode or the hard difficulty. Uh, and that's what I stayed on for the bulk of the, of the game. Now, one thing that I should mention about these uh, game modes 9 and 10, the co-op modes, I guess the other thing that makes them co-op is is your bunker stock is shared. Uh, and also, for some reason, your bunker color changes every few seconds. Uh, and then when you lose a bunker, your partner in the game will get an additional 500-point bonus. I'm not sure why they do it that way, but... Uh, that's the way it is. Oh, and the, another cool feature to kind of go along with that analogy I used before about Big Brother, Little Brother, you can actually choose different difficulty levels for the two-player game. So the left difficulty switch for player one can be set to either easy or hard, and then the right difficulty switch on the 2600 can be set to easy or hard. So depending on if one player is more skilled than the other, then you can do that also to help even that out a little bit more to kind of help keep the game flow a little bit more fair, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah, that's a pretty neat feature. I also played, well, I should say I played almost exclusively on the basic bombardment with game type one. We're going there and overall I had a pretty fun time with this. I liked it, as you mentioned earlier, the way that the, the enemies sort of warp in, almost like like you are, as the game is trying to put you on there, you are sitting there ready to shoot at these aliens, these silver-painted aliens that keep warping in from overhead to try and destroy you. It almost feels in some ways like this developer, if it was still today, could have gone to make on the EDF games. This almost feels huh. like, like something you would see today in the form of EDF. Yeah, that's interesting. And I love the early 80s vibe in the planet. You know, calling a, uh, these days you wouldn't get away with calling a planet, uh, forgive me for the term, but I believe it was Chrysor. Crybor. Crybor. That is so 80s, early 80s. I just, I just absolutely love it. And it hits all the right notes, you know. It, you know, if it was called the Planet Zarlov or something like that, it, it, it really hits that early 80s aesthetic to a T. 
it, it really is a product of its time. And hey, you got to respect the cheese, right? Oh, definitely. It and even though it's very the gameplay itself is very simplistic, and as we all know with Atari Twenty Six Hundred. It's very simplistic for the graphics and the sound. You have to use your imagination. But it's still a fun game and still could be played. You know, it's one of those things that you hop on, you play for a couple minutes, and you're done. Right. And I I would say it's fairly addictive, too. Oh, I would agree. I wouldn't call it a masterpiece like Tetris or something. But it's one of those things that you could probably play uh, just today. Like, if you... I mean, how many times have you seen Space Invaders pushed around? And it's pretty much the same game there. I could still play a round of Space Invaders on almost anything and have a good time. Heck, you, sure. you mentioned there's a new arcade that had opened up over by you. And I know that they have these as well, but it's just a giant Space Invaders cabinet. Yeah, they had Space Invaders Frenzy. Which is a little bit different because that's more of a, that's more of a hybrid of Space Invaders and a, a light gun game. But it's still an interesting take on the on the concept, nonetheless. True, but the, the core gameplay is still good and can be used in a variety of different things. Just as you have Pac-Man going on to Pac-Man Championship Edition, it, it works well and it holds up. And it's something that, while not very in-depth and you're not going to find a grandiose storyline, still holds up. Yeah, and that's that's one of the reasons why... You know, I chose these two games specifically because it's it's another way to sort of iterate on that single screen, scroll left and right formula that Space Invaders, Galaxian, Gorf, Phoenix, Galaga, etc. all did, but where these two games kind of iterate on that concept in their own little way. I mean, another one to look at is Galaga. I mean, how many times has that game come back? Absolutely. That game is a classic and just one of my favorite uh, shoot-em-ups. Def- definitely we're checking out and something that, well, I'm sure we'll be taking a look at it sometime. Oh, definitely. Uh, the other game that we played this month was Spider Fighter. Uh, do you want to uh, say a few words and illuminate us on this game? Sure. Uh, Spider Fighter was developed and published by Activision for the, the first third-party publisher for the 2600. The game design was done by, and this is his first game, Larry Miller. Now, those of you familiar with the Atari racing game Enduro, remember him, this is, that's his most famous game. I have to say, I do like Enduro a little bit more than Spider Fighter, but that's okay. We'll get on to why in just a little bit here. Activision were the very first third-party publisher, initially made up of former Atari employees who were tired of not getting their credit for the games they designed, despite making up a bulk of the money for the games that were sold. And it's interesting that Activision as a company weathered through the U.S. game market crash of 83. Despite some of the lean years of the 1990s, they've gone on to be a huge publisher. But the Activision that we know today is something that has been taken on an entirely different look than is. I would say it's more Activision and name only, but it's still a very powerful company. Sure. Kind of like Atari and name only these days. Atari, when you think of Atari, what do you think of these days? Speaker hats? <laughs> uh, well, Atari uh, box? these days, Linux? The, yeah, the, the Atari box or VCS as they're calling it now. 
maybe there's probably two words you think when you think of Atari these days. Product placements. <laughs> Anyways, like Demon Attack, Spider Fighter is a single screen fixed shooter where you move your cannon left and right and shoot multiple shots. It says bug spray, but in the manual it said poison. Yes, poison pellets. Poison pellets to try and take out your the insect menace that is trying to steal fruit from your orchard. This seems to be, this theme here is sort of taken a little bit from Donkey Kong Three, where you're trying to shoot poison up, well, up at Donkey Kong and and defeat the insects on there. It seems to be a little bit of a reoccurring theme on here, and I I don't know what it is about fruit on there. I think it, we had discussed this earlier with early arcade games and Atari games about fruit. It must have been the fact that it's easily recognizable for the sprites that they could do with the limited palette and memory they had for the systems. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I mean it's a it's a decent working theory as far as I'm concerned, you know, that that fruit is kind of instantly recognizable across many cultures and, and places and you know, it's easy to use bright colors and and simple sprites to represent things like an orange or a banana or even a strawberry, like in Pac-Man, for example. Um, so I think those things, they translate well. Yeah, we don't, as uh, Mark put it from Classic Game Room, we don't have a pretzel orchard in this in Spider Fighter. Yeah. Now, your craft in Spider Fighter is called a bug blaster. It shoots poison pellets at the spiders and it various enemies and you can have up to four in reserve this part <clears throat> sort of bugged me a little bit no pun intended it was <laughs> it was sorry bad joke it i was there's numerous stages where i would clear with all the and all the ships intact but i would only have four lives so it was almost worthless to try in some ways to keep going with the exception of score i would have liked to have a little bit more of a stock but i'm sure that was a memory limitation they couldn't get past could be the Bug Blaster has auto-fire two-point. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like quick machine gun type fire. Or sort of, for those of you who play Contra, and if you haven't, please go play it now. <clears throat> it's sort of the, the your initial shot of the pea shooter. I mean, it's not a continuous fire, but you shoot a couple bullets and it stops. You shoot a couple bullets and it stops. Right. And, and, and when I was playing it earlier, I found that, you know, you hold the button down and you'll you'll shoot out four or five shots or something like that and then there's a pause and you can keep holding the button down and eventually it'll shoot out more but what i found is a good strategy for that is hold the button down and shoot your your volley of four or five shots or whatever and then pick up and immediately press down again and just kind of get into a rhythmic uh motion of that to continue to press the button in not super rapid succession but kind of a rhythmic pattern to where you're you're getting to where you're almost at constant fire. So it's kind of a neat uh, a neat way to approach that. Yeah, tapping your way to victory. Yeah. All right. So enemy waves are made in spider fire enemy waves are made up of several assaults from an enemy master nest. I always picture these a little bit like a hornet's nest and their minion enemies. The number of master nest in reserve appears in the top left corner of the screen. And when the last nest is on the screen, that's the last one in its wave. I have to say that with with the way that the nest and the spiders and everything moves, it starts to get, it's get moving really quick and reminding me a lot of Atari's, excuse me, Activision's other game, Kaboom. Where things go from, okay, a little bit slow, 
a little bit more manageable. And then by the time you reach that bananas screen, it the game, as you put it, literally is bananas because everything is moving so fast. Yeah. Yeah, it gets really crazy. Moving on to the difficulty switches, the left switch A is the normal game, B is expert, right switch A is straight pellets, and B is guided pellets. Once again, we were talking about <clears throat> guided pellets of being where you're moving. With the regular pellets, you're just shooting straight up from where you are, so B is going to be a lot harder game than A. Yeah, and I, I never messed around with the uh, the steered or guided pellets um, because I find that that works well in a lot of the games that that was designed for specifically earlier on in the development cycle of the 2600 and so forth uh, because the games were designed around that limitation. But for games like this where the primary game mode is fire and forget and the bullet goes straight up from where you fired and then you switch to the, the guided pellets or, or the guided laser in, in Demon Attack, yeah, it becomes more difficult because it's more of a risk-reward to try and shoot an enemy that's low-flying or or could be shooting you at the same time. You know, it, it you, you run into a situation where you can very quickly end up in mutually assured destruction. Yeah, with a game, and Spider Fighter, to me at least, is is a much faster-paced game than Demon Attack. And for something where waves and waves of bugs are coming at you, you do not want to have a second to stop and then focus on your direction. You're going to have to be constantly moving, dodging and weaving and shooting. For sure. Now, like most Activision Atari 2600 games, you could send in photographic proof, which was harder than you might think at the, at the time to try and take a picture of the screen and make sure it came out looking good of a high score of 40,000 points on normal difficulty to earn a Spider Fighter badge. Now, interestingly yes. enough, the spider on the patch only has six legs. <laughs> yes, which I, I found curious, but it's the it's the same sprite on the, uh, the game box, kind of toward the center, off to the right, uh, this sort of weird-looking purple and yellow... Um, spider, I'll say in quotes, that has large bug eyes, uh, almost like googly eyes that you would see, and six somewhat hairy-looking legs. If it was developed by Rare, it would have googly eyes. <laughs> yeah, but it's curious that uh, uh, none of the that none of the so-called spiders in the game that you're fighting actually look like spiders. Yeah, and with the Tari on there, the cover could have cover could be looking like anything, and it just be it's like should have it's an artist rendition of what they think the game may look like. Um, and even into the NES area on there, you look at it and go, okay, so there's Mega Man. He's only a pistol. Why not? Right. It, it's just something that where sometimes they're just giving like, okay, here's what we think is going to go on there. It, it's a product of its time. And while it caused frustration and disappointment for many whose expectations did not live up to what they saw in the box, for, for us, it's just another form of amusement. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look back at that era and see artist renditions of what the games look like, especially things like a lot of the Atari games and some of the amazing art that was on the boxes and the cartridges 
and then how that doesn't even remotely translate to what's on the game itself because of the limitations of the 2600. Similarly, a lot of these Activision games have incredibly simplistic, cartoony art that I think probably better represents the games uh, that you're actually playing than a lot of the more lavish Atari art. But even so, it's still uh, much more high fidelity and detailed than anything that the 2600 is capable of producing. So there's still a, a bit of a disconnect uh, between what you see on the front of the box and turning it over and what you see on the back of the box and then how that translates to what you see on your TV. Well, that, as I'm sure you know, that led directly into Nintendo's black box line where Nintendo, would, even though it's a little bit more detailed, they're smudging it a little bit, but it's blown up sprites on the box to show people this is exactly what you'll see in the game. You're not going to be tricked like you were in the Atari days. Yeah, and that's an interesting uh, an interesting point because uh, it really does uh, give you an indication of of the direction the industry went, and uh, eventually it came back around to more lavish art and things like that. Like you said, the the depiction of Mega Man with the the pistol in his hand or things like that, uh, and somewhat more fanciful art on the cover, but that became more of a selling point because you could pick up the box and turn it over and see actual screenshots, not just representations like you would see on these Atari games. And so for NES games, Master System games, and beyond, you would actually be able to see what it will look like when you play it on your TV so that you're under no uh, no illusions that you're getting uh, some sort of product that is much more detailed or much more robust, I should say, than what it really is. When you said Master System, all I could think of is the magnifying glass, the clip art, the magnifying glass for Action Fighter. Oh. So like, where is the action? Oh, there it is. Or, uh, or the wrestling game where the guy is headlocking his own head. <laughs> those are so great. I, oh man, I don't know who at Tonka approved that, but God bless him. Yeah, those are some great <laughs> box arts. Anyway, yeah. uh, in Spider Fighter, we from the game's bug glossary or enemy list, and. You know, it's sort of interesting the way that this is put out in Spider Fighter. It's I could see this showing up if it, let's say Spider Fighter were an arcade game. I could see this showing and going this enemy and then putting its name next to it and then going eight hundred points or something like that. This really reads like an arcade. You could see it as an arcade game. Right. Uh, starting from the top, we have the Master Nest. This is the ringleader and major fruit thief. It's protected from its poison by a white band until it releases a spy pod. Its sole aim is to keep you busy with bugs so it can steal the fruit. Almost sounds like a, a bug version of the hamburger or something. <laughs> I'm going to get that. All right, anyway. is The spy pods themselves, these are the... Um, oh, they, they almost remind me of like the energy pellets in Metroid. The way that they're drawn. Yeah, a little bit. And they're uh, with those different colors. Anyways, these sneaky critters scout around and instruct the master nest to release more insects. As long as any spy pods remain on screen, the master nest continues to release to its creepy offspring. Destroy the spy pods and slow, 
slow the infestation. And then moving on, we have the green widows, which is sort of interesting, but I, I'm guessing it must be to differentiate the color. Because I'm not aware of too many spiders that are green. Yeah, me neither. The green widows fly interference, protecting the master nest with cover fire. They also act as living shields, sacrificing themselves by intercepting your poison pellets. Even though the green widows are slower and dumber, be careful. They still deal a deadly bite. Yeah, these things are pretty much like a force field for the spy pods in the master nest. They're meant to get in your way and deal with your shots one or two fields above. Yeah, they definitely kind of serve as the uh, foot soldiers of the game in a way. Yeah, I would re- in modern shooter terms, I refer to them as popcorn enemies. For sure. And last but not least, we have the Stingers, the most dangerous and aggressive of the pack. Stingers track your blaster with a single-minded goal of destroying you. When you kill the Master Nest, Pods and Whittles instantly transform into Stingers. Then, the mortality rate is very high, so watch out. <laughs> yeah, the Stingers were pretty hard to deal with there, but honestly, at the rate this game starts going... Everything just moves really fast, and you have to constantly be on the move for anything. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it starts to get uh, it starts to get pretty nuts once you are up a few levels, and uh, especially if you destroy a master nest, uh, and there are still enemies on screen, they all turn into stingers. So. If you have any low-flying green widows that turn into stingers, then there's almost no space between them and the bottom of the screen where the bug blaster is. So you really are in pretty serious danger of losing a life uh, just because it's almost impossible to get underneath of them and shoot them and get away unscathed. Yeah, almost. I In this game, I had almost everything was treated with equal threat or even even the green widows something that could kill me pretty quickly if i was just not constantly dodging weaving dodging weaving yep all right would you start with the scoring sure uh so going back to demon attack in waves one and two uh demons are worth 10 points each Uh, and so as i mentioned since there are eight total large enemies in uh, a wave, that means you can score a maximum of, or you will score 80 points in the first round uh, and 80 points in the second wave. Then, starting in waves 3 and 4, those demons are worth 15 each. In wave 5, that's when they start to split off, so a large demon is worth 20 points to split. Then the smaller demons are worth 40 points, uh, and then if you have a demon that dives down at you, uh, so as I mentioned, if you if you split a demon off and then you shoot one of the two that splits off, the second one or the partner smaller demon will start dive bombing you. Those are worth 80 points. So obviously the strategy is to make sure that you're taking advantage of that at every, uh, every turn. Uh, in waves 7 and 8, the large enemies are worth 25 to split, Small enemies are worth 50, and the diving enemies 100. In waves 9 and 10, it goes 30 for large, 60 for small, and 120 for diving. And then 
on waves 11 and 12, it's 35 for large enemies, uh, or for splitting them. Small enemies are 70 points, and then the diving enemies are 140 points. And uh, as far as uh, the actual high scores that we uh, we got, um, I don't have a record here of all the scores, but I had the highest score on Demon Attack with... Uh, 35,790 points on the uh, regular difficulty and 29,670 on the expert difficulty. Congratulations, that's nothing to sneeze at. No, I I felt pretty good about that uh, by the time I got done. Uh, looking at Spider Fighter, uh, the scoring is slightly more simplistic. Uh, master Nests are worth 100 points. The Stingers are worth 50 points, the Spy Pods are also worth 50 points, and then the Green Widows are worth 30. So, realistically, your your strategy could be, if you wanted to try and maximize score, to allow the Master Nest to put out more than one Spy Pod and kind of pick those off, and then eventually destroy the Master Nest when the last Spy Pod and a Green Widow or two are on screen, so that then the rest of the enemies all convert to stingers so that you ensure that they'll all be worth maximum points. Now, one thing that the manual says is in the expert game, the point values for insects are multiplied when you're protecting certain fruit. Uh, So the insects are worth twice as much when you're protecting grapes, four times as much when you're protecting the uh, strawberries, and then eight times as much as the regular point values when bananas are present. So then the order goes oranges, grapes, strawberries, and bananas. And so the actually, the expert game, you can rack up some pretty high point values once you start to get to the point where you're protecting strawberries or bananas because the, the, the point values go way up. Also, if you manage to save all three fruit in a wave and you also have all four bug blasters in reserve, you get an additional 500 point bonus. And then in addition to that, if you save all three fruit in a wave, but you don't have all four bug blasters, then that gives you the ability to earn another bug blaster uh, to keep in reserve. And once again, I had the high score on expert difficulty. A st- well, I'll just say what I consider to be a staggering uh, 141,980 points. You certainly would have earned that badge. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's 40,000 points on the normal difficulty, which I think would probably be maybe slightly harder to earn only because the point values don't don't have the multiplier in the normal game mode. So it's a little bit more of eking out the point values based on based on the, the regular scoring and then trying to make sure that you're not losing bug blasters so you can always get that 500-point bonus. Because then that means that if you're scoring somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 800 points around and you're getting the 500-point bonus, you know, do the math, that's still about... 25 to 35 rounds, depending on how much you're scoring, to reach that 40,000 point total without those multipliers. 
So that's still quite a feat. And actually, it's funny, since I reached that score on Expert, I considered maybe uh, ordering one of those badges for myself just for the fun of it. Uh, but I looked on eBay and those things aren't cheap. The, the one that I looked at, I think, was $15 or something like that for one of these patches. So I thought that was uh, not terrible, but certainly more money than I thought something like that might be worth. You know what we could probably do for you on this case? Probably find you a 2600 cart of Demon Attack. We'll paint it silver. <laughs> we'll use that as a trophy. And then we'll take the Spider Fighter. We'll paint that one gold and we'll give that to you as a trophy. There you go. Well, I don't need a trophy. I'm just uh, I'm just happy to uh, not have been blown out of the water this month by, uh, you know, Gollum or someone else who uh, would have had a, uh, a much bigger score. <laughs> it still did very well. Taking a look at Spider Fighter and Demon Attack in the 2600, they were released under a couple different compilations. We have the PS1 Activation Classics, sorry, excuse me, Activision Classics, which is Spider Fighter only. The PS2 Activision Anthology, which has both of them on it, and my favorite way to play these games. We have the PSP Activision Hits Remixed, the iOS slash Android Activision Anthology, the Game Boy Advance Activation Anthology, which has Spider Fighter only, and the Windows slash Macintosh Activision Anthology. Now, the reason why that Spider Fighter and Demon Attack can live on this, these Activision re-releases is Activision, sorry, Activision owns the iMagic licenses and IPs. Yes. Did you play on your original 2600 for all of this, or slash 7800? Yeah, I actually... Uh... I don't own those other compilations. I thought I had the uh, Activision Anthology on PS2, and I was planning on getting the PSP uh, Activision Hits Remix, but that's gone up in price, so I didn't end up acquiring that during the month. Um, so yeah, I actually played both of these games on original cartridges via my, my Atari 7800. Now, I will say that I did not use the uh, terrible 7800 joysticks, however. Uh, I actually just plugged in a three-button Sega Genesis controller, which is a much more comfortable way to play, and probably one of the reasons why I was able to uh, pull off the scores that I did, because it's a more comfortable and uh, easier way to control those games for me. Yeah, I end up using or preferring the PS2 version. I like the uh, PS2 controller for this and using the analog to move the ships around or the sorry the bunker and the spider fighter ship around but i ended up having to at least in spider fighter adapt a little bit of a claw grip because the x button was a default for shoot i should have looked at remapping the buttons and didn't but it made it a little bit harder for the spider fire uh, machine gun fire oh sure as i was using that on there so that's where i came across a little bit of a claw grip as i was pressing that and i'm it almost seems, as weird as this is to say this, but maybe a combination uh, arcade stick or something else would have been the best solution for this. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, I bet an arcade stick would actually feel pretty natural and pretty good 
for a game like this. And so it, it's kind of too bad that I don't, you know, don't have the PS2 version because I have a couple of, of PS2 arcade sticks that would have been fun to try out with it. The PS2 version, the other reason why I like it so much is it has licensed 80s music. So, I mean, just imagine as you're playing this, you're hearing Flock of Seagulls in the background or some other uh, cheesy 80s song playing through it. It definitely adds to the ambiance for me and gets me past the usualness. Uh, anyone who's played Atari is familiar with the sounds. You know, you get that, as the angry video game nerd said, space shoot, shoot laser, boom. <laughs> you know, it was it was like the uh, the space age of gaming, as he put it. Right. And, and as I mentioned in our 1942 episode, you know, you used to kind of have what you could call the Atari fart noise, where, uh, you know, a lot of games had a sort of stand-in sound for certain sound effects, uh, when it wasn't a white noise kind of thing for an explosion or a high-pitched beep or or whistle kind of noise. A lot of times you had these weird noise that was sort of a combination of white noise and and beeps or or various tones. And it kind of sounds like a, you know, a loud fart. <laughs> uh, thankfully, neither of these games suffers from the Atari fart syndrome. Uh, but but even so, the sound effects, despite being reasonably good, are you know they're they're still very basic, uh, which transitions us nicely into talking about the graphics and sound. As far as Demon Attack is concerned, I really liked the colorful large enemy sprites. Uh, they're multicolored, and uh, even though, as you said earlier. You know, it's Atari 2600, you you have to use your imagination. I still think they, they are a pretty good representation of, you know, these sort of winged flying demon creatures that uh, you have to fight. Certainly a much more, uh, a more interesting foe than the uh, front of the box with the painted dinosaur models and uh, fighter jet wings kind of, you know, glued onto the backs would lend you to believe. Yeah, I definitely like the graphics in Demon Attack. The bunker was a little weird. I could, I was picturing the spaceship the entire time I was looking at this thing. Is I could have seen that it almost the spaceship if you turn on inside could remind me of the uh, big core from Gradius. Kind of, yeah. I was, uh, and I, I kept thinking, shoot the core. But uh, <laughs> as I was looking through that, that I I could tell what it was. At first, I was taken off a little bit. Because it looked like one of the birds was was like raining down, or it was a cloud, and it was raining down. When I initially looked at, it. we know what the three the, th- the three dots of the lasers of it trying to shoot the bunker. Initially, that was a little bit off putting, but it quickly grew upon me, and and I really like it. And the sound effects were really good for what the what the Atari could produce, and the warping effect, as previously mentioned, was really nice. All in all, it was it's a fun game to play. To pa- if you're going to pass some time. I could see if I was stuck in a dentist office or waiting in the doctor's office, I could get a lot of enjoyment about playing that for a couple rounds. Sure. The one, uh, the one odd choice that they did with the sound effects is when you shoot an enemy and your laser connects and the enemy explodes or splits, it makes this weird sort of twinkling sound, like you would imagine uh, in, a, in a cartoon or something like that. So instead of an explosion... And I don't know if that's 
meant to represent those the the demons that you're attacking, so to speak, them kind of screaming or you know wincing in pain or what have you because you've just shot them with a laser. Uh, but it it's not a very effective indicator of or it's not a very satisfying sound effect to hear when you've just shot down an alien menace. So it's a bit of a curious choice. Yeah, it's, it's akin to um, a probably recent example here. I was watching GameStack's video on the Neo Geo CD, and they have this one with Fighter's History, the one that has Karnov in it. And they're, they're, they're fighting and fighting, and you hear all these sound effects of people hitting the usual effects. And there's a part where the guy kicks another guy, and you just hear a cartoon boing. okay that's a little out of place and everything else sounds nice but all right right uh and and uh for spider fighter uh I, i felt like the visuals were pretty colorful and one of the things that is impressive about the graphics in spider fighter is much like kaboom uh which activision had previously released um spider fighter is very fluid and fast uh, so when you move your bug blaster back and forth on the screen, it moves at a pretty good clip, and the enemies move pretty quickly too. Bullets um, come down, you know, fairly rapidly, and uh, as with a lot of Atari graphics, they ghost ever so slightly as they travel down the screen. So that provides a nice effect, especially on a CRT, um, playing it on real hardware. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the game starts to get really fast as you go up in levels, and so that smooth movement uh, is quite impressive, and I don't recall seeing any sprite flicker. So that was a, a nice, I guess, technical achievement from Activision there. Uh, as far as the, the sounds, uh, they're pretty basic. Um, there's kind of a nice explosion noise when you take out the enemies, and then this weird sort of noise when uh, your bug blaster gets hit, which I kind of liked. And then also there's a little musical ditty that plays when you finish a round and you gain an extra bug blaster. It's like a... So it's kind of a neat little extra bit in there. Otherwise, you know, the shot sound um, from your... When you're shooting up the poison pellets is a nice kind of crunchy, satisfying gun or cannon fire type of, of sound effect. So overall, I thought the sound effects in, in Spider-Fighter were reasonably strong. Yeah, I like the sound effects and the graphics in Spider-Fighter. Even though you're looking at this thing going, okay, I'm not exactly sure this would qualify as a nest, or uh, sure, green spiders, whatever. <laughs> you know, you're coming in going, okay, I'm fighting a six-legged spider. Let's go. Let's just go have some fun. Yeah, that's, that's how I view this. So it, it could have thrown, I mean, it could have just been apples shooting at me and I would have been, all right, still fun. <laughs> yeah. The, the gameplay is there. You're shooting bugs. It's simplistic, but it definitely works. And not, nothing seems too terribly out of place. It's another one of these games that you can probably, would be a quick time waster that you could play uh, as you're waiting at the doctor's office or something on there. But it real both of these titles do a really good job of harkening back to the single screen arcades that were extremely popular at the time. I mean, even look at Nintendo. Nintendo tried it twice, right, with Radar Scope and with Donkey Kong Three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and for me, these two games were fun for me to revisit because 
I haven't put a serious amount of time into either in a long, long time. But these were both childhood favorites because my next door neighbor, who I mentioned, had both an Atari 2600 and a and the NES. He had a reasonably large library of Atari games. Uh, and of course, he had several several Activision games, uh, and he had several iMagic games, along with a whole slew of Atari first-party cartridges. And you know, all the all the common games. You know, he had he had most of the big Activision games. He had uh, Pitfall, and he had uh, Spider Fighter, and he had uh, I think he had Kaboom. And he had Chopper Command, which we played all the time. And then, you know, for Atari games, he had Berserk and and uh, uh, Dig Dug. And he had the Atari conversion of uh, uh, Donkey Kong. But uh, he had he had Demon Attack and he had Spider Fighter. And we used to play them a lot. And they were games that we loved to just pull out and, and kind of play. And, and we never really messed with the two-player modes because I don't think... At that time, any of us understood how to use the switches because all we had were the cartridges. No manuals, no boxes, any of that. So we always just played whatever the default game mode was. And then when one of us would die, we would either hand the controller over and take turns or, you know, one person would just play through until they lost their lives and then the next player would get a turn and and we'd kind of do it that way. But these these childhood favorites were fun for me to revisit. Yeah, and thanks for picking them. I definitely had... These weren't childhood favorites of mine, but I still had fun with them. There's something about this that you can just the pick up and play. You can just get right into it. it. There's not a lot of explanation. We're not trying for scoring mechanics in DOJ or Destiny or anything like that. It's just simple, pure fun. Yeah. Speaking of thoughts on here, let's take a quick look at what the RF Gen community thought. Thought as they played through. Lord Borb 4 said, I'm in as well, and I must say I've never played an Atari game. This will be a first. Almost forgot, my vote goes down to Demon Attack, and it's quite unique setting. Wow, I'm generally blown away. As I said, Demon Attack is my first game ever that I've seen in person and played. Is this supposed to be as smooth, or is the emulator doing God's work? Just wow. I've downloaded the manual and cover art for a more authentic experience, and I love the overall feeling. It's gaming at its purest form, and I'm so glad I took time to enjoy an Atari game. I completely agree with this. It's definitely just fun to still down. I really wonder what he thought of the uh, uh, models, the spray-painted models on that. (laughs) Maybe we should ask. It's definitely a lot of fun. One of the things I didn't have a chance to bring up just yet is I ended up getting a D10 Nano, which we'll get into a little bit later, and some stuff. But uh, it's basically an FP, multi-FPGA uh, machine. So basically, it's a machine that can emulate other machines' hardware without having to use a regular computer. It gets, it's like hardware simulation is the closest you can get for it. And to see both of these games on there, they they look incredible. Atari on HDMI, because the graphics are so simple, it scales and looks really nice on a in 1080 on an HD display. Oh, that's cool. It's definitely something I see. The only problem I had with it was that 
for some reason the games look like they played extreme or the games played too fast for me. <laughs> and with Spider Fighter being fast fast enough already, I had to switch over to the PS2 version. Ah, uh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, Lord Lord Borba's uh, responses. I, I just I really smiled when I was reading those because it's rewarding to see uh, someone pick up a game for the first time that you've known about for years and years. I mean, I've been, you know, I've played Demon Attack and Spider Fighter both for 30 years, really. And to see someone who's never picked one of those games up before and just totally light up and really enjoy it and revel in that experience, especially when it's an older game like that, that is so simplistic, but very pick up and play. It was just neat to read his comments and uh, and hear what he had to say about it because, uh, yeah, it, it that just tickled me. I mean, that's the whole point of the Shmup Club, right? Oh, absolutely. For us all to play together and have new experiences. Yeah, so I mean, it was re- it was very rewarding to uh, to see his enthusiasm for it. Right, you want to take the next one? Sure. Uh, Lewis G. also gave a lot of feedback on Demon Attack here. Uh, He says, Demon Attack! Are we playing regular mode with difficulty set to A? There's also Tracer and Advanced. Advanced is really fun, in my opinion. Hmm. Come to think of it, I don't think I've ever tried Tracer mode. And then in a later post, he says, Okay, Tracer just follows your ship like in almost every other 2600 shooter. And holy crap, Advanced mode is hard. It's really good, but I must have been playing a ton of Demon Attack because I remember thinking it was easy. Oh, are we voting on these two? And that's, of course, uh, referring to Lord Borba's posts uh, about uh, his vote was for Demon Attack. He says, I'm new, sorry. I'm leaning towards Demon Attack, but I'm looking forward to spending more time with Spider Fighter as I chase other people's scores. Maybe I'll find some depth I missed back when I first played it. Uh, so then later in the in the thread, he says, here's my latest on Demon Attack. And he posted a, a score with that. It says, we also need to decide if we're playing on difficulty A, harder, or B, normal. And uh, I replied to him later to just say, you know, play whichever one you want. Just let me let us know when you post a pick which mode you're playing on so that the scoring can be accounted for accordingly. He says, I realize my Stella score was B, I think. And my physical Atari score was on A. The manual lists A as aggressive action and B as and B as bombastic bombardment. Cheesy. <laughs> uh, he says once you get through the orbs, the game loops more or less. Uh, and that's what I was mentioning earlier: is the wave eleven and twelve are those pulsating orbs that get smaller and bigger. He says the enemy speed seems faster, but because the enemy type goes back to a simpler one the game backs off a little in difficulty for several rounds. Uh, I wish past that stage they'd start mixing it up more. It would have been neat to see levels with multiple enemy types, but I think this game rocks pretty hard for a 1982 home console Space Invaders clone. Uh, And then further in the thread, he says, I haven't topped my last score yet, but with the orbs, I've found a better strategy. Get into a position where it's firing at you and you're fleeing it. As soon as the beam passes, immediately reverse direction underneath it. Before, I would try to, I would wait to try to get a sense of the timing between shots. 
but I think there's always time to do this if you're close to its beam when it ends. And there's some truth to that, but there's that's very risk-reward, especially because the enemy's shots, uh, especially for the enemies that shoot the lasers like the orbs, they're always tracer shots. So when the enemy moves, the lasers will move with them, which, which means that if you're trying to stay close to the laser beam and the enemy is moving in your general direction, you're going to have to keep pace with them in order to not get, uh, get shot down. We have a post from Doug Lee, 007. Do I post my crappy scores or do I have to be better than the top scores? I'm giving it all she's got. I just suck at shmups. If anything, I'll post a crappy score next time I play. You know what? We're going to hold them to this. On Lightning Force or Lightning Force, let's post a crappy score section. I'll join in. Absolutely. And and the, the way that I mentioned to Dougley is it doesn't matter how good you are at the game. The whole idea is to post your scores no matter what they are and, you know, for, for a, a way to, A, track your own progress, but then, B, so that we can all kind of cheer each other on. You know, this is not a serious competition where you're playing for any kind of real bragging rights or anything like that. It's more of just a way to chart your progress and, and uh, you know, for us to, at RF Generation, to try and, and encourage one another in this uh, adventure that we're on here. Uh, you know, we're exploring these different games every month and, and, uh, you know, we're not, we're not trying for world record score efforts or anything like that. We're just trying to get better in general or just have fun with these games. The scores are just a way for you to, to kind of see where you're at and, you know, really just show that you're participating. Uh, and so I, I would encourage anyone who's joining into the Shmup Club with us every month, even if you don't consider yourself to be good at the genre, I would still encourage you to post your scores so that, uh, you know, we can encourage you and cheer you on and, you know, go one more round and, and uh, you know, that kind of a thing to, to just help motivate one another as we play. Yeah, the scoring, I would say, is a means to an end. Yeah, uh, and the, the final comment here from Lewis G is we, we had much less feedback on Spider Fighter. And I don't know if that's because toward the end of the month when people were starting to play that more, um, there was less participation just because everybody got busy with the holiday. Uh, but uh, it was the last week of, of the month and Lewis G posts and says, Last week, I'm going to do some Atari tonight. Spider Fighter is also growing on me. So um, I was glad to see that that uh, at least, you know, the impression of the game was improving somewhat. Uh, I've always been partial to Spider Fighter and always thought it was a great game, but I think maybe it, it's one of Activision's lesser-known titles and uh, doesn't get as much love, I think, as a lot of their other more well-known games. Um, yeah, I would echo that sentiment. There, according to Wikipedia, Wikipedia, Spider Fighter when it came out was one made it one of Activision's lowest selling titles, and was outdone by I forget the name, but there was another sh- shoot 'em up that was more popular that was released a couple months later, that pretty much blew it out of the water, 
I mean, it was definitely a good freshman effort by Larry, but in stands out pretty well. But compared to its contemporaries, it's just not as good as the rest of them. And I, I think that's the reason why you don't see it much heralded in there. And there's also not a lot of people talking about the Atari and Atari games these days. Yeah. It is uh, a little bit more slim. Although with things like the, the Atari Game by Game podcast and that, at least there's some community that's still still celebrating it outside of Atari age. Yeah, and it, it, a lot of it has to do with demographics, too. I mean, a, a lot of the... You'd look at maybe five or five to seven years ago, the Nintendo was the hot system, and that, that at ju- it's just going to happen the same way to every, every other system, but... That system's being phased out, and the Nintendo games are more and more people are starting to let go of that. And people, even the Super Nintendo people, within a couple of years, people are going to start going with that. You see the N60, I mean, it's been a, at least for a couple of years now, N64, PlayStation 1. It hasn't quite hit the PS2, in my opinion, but sure, those are the systems that are popular right now. If you go back to probably 98, 99, 2000, maybe. T- like 2001, 2002 or so, that's when you have the huge Atari boom. Of course, because that's when the people who grew up with it had the disposable income, right? Right. Yeah, and, and then, you know, guys like us who, who were old enough to remember and appreciate the Atari and the ColecoVision and television and all of that began to, you know, reach adulthood and, like you say, start to have disposable income and start to see the stuff dirt cheap at... Uh, swap meets, pawn shops, Goodwills, game stores, etc. And suddenly an Atari console at a garage sale for 10, 15, 20 bucks and a dozen games or, you know, uh, half a dozen games at the at the pawn shop or the swap meet at 50 cents a piece. And suddenly you've got a, a small little library of fun games that you remember from your childhood and maybe a couple that you never played and uh you know you you can kind of recreate that experience a little bit or at least rekindle that flame um so it's it's an interesting uh phenomenon how that works and i've been hearing that a lot of younger the younger generation is picking up because the atari games are so cheap again that they're picking up and trying out different titles which is exciting to hear yeah, it's, uh, it's neat to see that people are, are not discounting these old games just because they're old games that are really simplistic. Uh, it's, it's good to see that things like the Atari Flashback and, and those kinds of things, there's still a, a market for those things all these years later. Yeah, Atari is definitely more than its current namesake would have you believe. Yeah, but I think the general consensus throughout the course of the month is that for the participants involved, that generally everybody is leaning toward Demon Attack and kind of preferring that between the two games. Demon Attack has a lot more flair to it and a lot more recognizable. It also has that warping effect that you mentioned that does a little bit more to add add into the feel. Into it, it, it has just enough to put it a little bit over the top than what. I mean, if you mention to people, would you rather be shooting bugs to protecting fruit, or would you rather be stuck on an ice planet shooting demons? And so, like, well, okay, do I want Wolfenstein or do I want Doom? (laughs) Do I want something? Do I want to rip and tear, or do I want to want to shoot some guards and then some dogs? 
Right. You know, it, it gives you that 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 sort of like PG thirteen feel. Sure. Where Spider Fighter is a little bit more of a G rated feel. Right, and and two, uh, Demon Attack, it, it it can bring a level of intensity once you start to get up a few levels. It doesn't feel like it's being cheap or unfair or like you're being specifically targeted so much. Whereas I think with Spider Fighter, there's a little bit more of that because the game moves so quickly that it almost feels as though you're being specifically targeted. And of course you are because you're the only, you're the only uh, protagonist, so to speak, in the game. But it, Spider Fighter can make you feel a little bit more like they're pinpointing you. Whereas in Demon Attack, a lot of the attacks are just coming down and they're not always firing bullets or lasers specifically at you. They're just firing in a pattern and your job is to kind of maneuver around those and avoid those attacks and then kind of sneak in and and get a laser in place to try and attack the enemy when you can. With Spider Fighter, it's a lot more just lay down a whole bunch of fire and maneuver left and right and dodge as best you can, but once the game starts to ramp up in the speed, uh, then it becomes a lot more difficult to actually plan what you're doing or react in uh, a logical way. It becomes more of a just go crazy and move around as much as you can and hope that you're dodging bullets along the way. Yeah, and I mean, another way of putting it is... You don't feel like in some ways with Spider Fire you're at the mercy of a random number generator where not everything is up to your skill, just about how, how lucky you are. And you feel a lot more in control of the situation with Demon Attack. Yeah. Playing Spider Fighter now, I still enjoy it, I think, as much as I did when I was a kid. And I think the one major advantage that's, that Spider Fighter has over Demon Attack, especially in the expert mode, is the scoring. Because the scoring is, even though it's less nuanced than what's in Demon Attack, because of the multiplier, when you start to get up in levels, your scores can get downright ridiculous. I mean, 141,000 points that I was able to score, I never dreamed that I would score that kind of, that kind of uh, point total in a game like that. Uh, so there's a certain attractiveness to that. But outside of that, I would say Demon Attack is definitely the the more well-realized game, I'll say. And I think probably the game that is overall better designed. And so I, I too, will have to lean toward Demon Attack as probably the the winner this month in terms of, of which game I think is, is the better game. Sounds good. Speaking of games, could you tell us what's coming out for January? Yes. So uh, as we record this, we're uh, still early in the month of January. And this month, we are finally getting to my favorite shoot-em-up of all time, Lightning Force, a.k.a. Thunder Force 4. Uh, This is a classic game from Technosoft. Their uh, final shoot-em-up opus from the 16-bit era and in my personal opinion, the highlight of the entire Thunder Force series. Uh, Thunder Force 4 released on the Mega Drive in Japan and then came to 
the Western audiences as Lightning Force, and uh, with some uh, some changes to the game that we'll get into in more detail during uh, our next podcast recording. Uh, and then the Thunder Force 4 was re- released on the Sega Saturn via what's called the Thunder Force Gold Pack 2, which is a disc that includes both Thunder Force AC, or the Thunder Force 3 arcade release, and then Thunder Force 4. One of the cool features that Technosoft added for Thunder Force 4 on the Saturn release is, A, they made it so that you can take out the slowdown that was present on the Genesis version, which can either be a blessing or a curse, uh, depending on what your opinion is of the slowdown. Uh, For me, it would be a bit of a curse because the slowdown actually helps to avoid uh, certain death in many situations. But it also adds a really cool feature where you can play through all of Thunder Force 4 using the Styx ship that was in Thunder Force 3. Uh, And so it's a really neat feature that I'm looking forward to exploring throughout the month. And you can do that yourself without having to own a Japanese Sega Saturn or a copy of Thunder Force Gold Pack 2 because the new release of Thunder Force 4 and Lightning Force is available on the Nintendo Switch eShop courtesy of M2 and the Sega Ages line. And they have given us this package that includes both the Western Lightning Force release and the Japanese Thunder Force 4 release with online leaderboards and with a uh, the inclusion of the Sega Saturn features, such as the reduction in slowdown and the ability to play as the Styx ship from Thunder Force 3. So I'm um, looking very much forward to that. And then in February we're going to be playing Zanak, or Zanak, uh, however you pronounce it. Um, of course, most of us know Zanak from the NES, and that is probably the primary version that most of us will be playing, but there's also the Zanak release that came out for the MSX computer, and there's Zanak Neo, which is part of the Zanak X Zanak release that came out in Japan for the Sony PlayStation, and is available uh, inexpensively these days on the, the PlayStation Network that you can buy for, I want to say it's uh, 6 or $7, and that you can play on your PlayStation 3. Uh, so that's an inexpensive way to play Xanak Neo, which is essentially a remake of the first Xanak game, but with nicer graphics and sound. Now, isn't this our first Technosoft and our first Compile game? Yes, these uh, these are we're starting off the year with new publishers, and so Technosoft. This is our first Technosoft game for the Shmup Club, and Xanak is our first compile game for the Shmup Club, and it's fitting because uh, it was actually Compile's second game, I believe, and their first shoot 'em up. Very cool. I Compile is one of my favorite developers, and you can't go wrong with Technosoft. Definitely not. For to give everybody a frame of reference real quick, Compile developed the Aleste series, but their most famous one you probably heard of is Musha for the Genesis. Yes, Musha Alesta. We definitely have some good uh, stuff planned for the rest of the year, as well as some collaboration, so stay tuned. 
make sure to head over to rfgeneration.com if and give us a shout out and take a look at the database and we'd love to have you participate I'd also like to thank Sir Flash of Studio Muppets and Bullet Heaven for the logo yes and we have t-shirts if you go to redbubble.com and look up shoot the core or search for the word shmup uh, you will find the Shoot the Core Cast t-shirt, which I'm actually wearing right now. And they are a nice, uh, nice clean t-shirt that features the logo that Sarah designed. And uh, they really turned out nice. So I'm very happy with these shirts and uh, help support the podcast and buy a shirt. I'd also li- I'd like to add one last thank you to Shadow Kurosaragi from... RF Jen for providing me with a copy of Spider Fighter so I could play through it this month. Thank you very much. Oh, awesome. And of course, to Kogasu for our intro and outro music, as well as uh, Single Banana and Grey Ghost 81, the uh, RF Generation Playcast crew. Uh, The other thing we should mention is that I am now a streamer. Uh, Not the kind that you hang for a birthday party, but I'm doing live streaming. Uh, I'm on Twitch as Guru Game Boy, uh, because for some reason Game Boy Guru was already taken. And uh, of course, I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel I've been running for several years, and you can watch me on there. And I generally also stream on Periscope. Uh, and so if you follow my Twitter account at Game Boy Guru, and uh, you happen to see the notification there pop up on your phone or on your computer when you're on Twitter, uh, then you'll be able to watch that via Periscope as well. And so I have already streamed um, several times this month, and I started January 1st, and I'm hoping to, each month with the Shmup Club, stream the Shmup Club Game of the Month uh, multiple times throughout the course of the month while we're playing that game. And so I've already streamed Lightning Force uh, at least three times and am looking to do that more throughout the month. And then uh, I'm doing that via the Switch. And then I'm looking to do streaming of the Thunder Force 4 original Japanese version as well. And once I get my setup all tested out and everything, uh, I'm going to probably try and stream from original hardware using my original Lightning Force cartridge that I've owned since I was 14. So be looking forward to that and uh, make sure you follow me on on Twitter at Game Boy Guru uh, or follow the podcast at ShootCoreCast uh, to see notifications of when that's happening. Or if you're on Twitch, find me there, Guru Game Boy, and um, get notified when I'm going to stream. Sounds good. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or, or shout out before we uh, bid adieu to our listeners? No, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy. Yes, thank you very much, and we will see you next month. <laughs>